All right, counting today, we have two more weeks, two more sermons in First in Corinthians, one year later, plus. Um, so we'll finish it next week, which will be the week before Easter. After Easter, we're going to do a, a sermon series on both Ruth and Esther, both Old Testament books, both narratives, both uh, stories, accounts centered around women. And then during the summer, we're going to cover some Psalms. And then in the fall, we're going to start Hebrews. And we'll be in Hebrews for a while. So that's where we're going. Um, today, we're going to cover the, the end of chapter 15, the very last verse, just one verse. We've spent uh, four weeks now going through this long chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Four weeks talking mostly about resurrection both Christ's resurrection in the past and our resurrection, or the resurrection of all people, but especially of God's people, to new life in the future. And at the end of this chapter on resurrection, uh, Paul gives an application of this future hope that we have, a, an application for the here and now. This hope of resurrection, this assurance that death has been defeated, that death is not the end, sin has been defeated, the power of sin to condemn, all of this together motivates, or ought to motivate and empower us to live here and now. This, this hope that we have is not just something that we kind of know is in the future and we'll think about it then. No, it is meant to be something that practically changes how we live here and now. And so I want to just pause today and just sit in this this verse that applies all of the truth of the doctrine of what we just looked at. It's a wonderful verse with obvious relevance to, to all of our lives. So 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15, 58. We're going to start with the first, ver first word. Therefore. Now, you, uh, you've likely heard the word, the, the rule about the word therefore, Right? Whenever you come across the word therefore in, in writing, you have to ask, what is it therefore? Because therefore is a connecting word. It's a pointing back word. It's a summarizing word. And so here, Paul is pointing back and connecting and summing up all that he just said in chapter 15 in order to get to this conclusion, this application. So first, we have to understand what Paul, at least some of what Paul has just said the context of chapter 15 is that there were some in the church in Corinth who, was, who were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. That's not a thing. That's not a thing that happens. The, the hope that we have in Christ is just a hope for this life. There's not hope beyond death. That's, that's what they were saying. That's what they believe. There's no reason to hope beyond death. This life is all we have. This is, of course, not not too different. This is, this is how many people today, what many people today would say as well. You only live once. This is it. Live it up. Get all that you can. Grab life by the horns. This is your only chance. It's not all too different from how many people live today either, including many of us in the church. We, we just run after that which satisfies us now rather than that which is meant to satisfy us for all, for all eternity or that which seems valuable now rather than looking for that which is valuable for all eternity. 
We just live for the here and now. Whatever seems right, feels good here and now. And Paul is devoting this entire chapter, quite a lot of words here, to correcting this false teaching, this false belief. And he begins by reminding them of the gospel and specifically that the resurrection is a critical part of the gospel message. So in verse 3, chapter 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So Christ died for our sins. This is a, a wonderfully, wonderfully simple summary of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ didn't just die. He didn't just happen to die. And he didn't even just die as an expression of love for us, although that was part of it. But his death had a purpose. Had a, a, it accomplished something. That's what they had a purpose, and it, it succeeded in that purpose. He died for our sins. He died as the substitute punishment, the guilt bearer for our sin and guilt. He died to bring us to God to, so that the just God could justly justify the unjust. Did you get all that? The just God could justly justify the unjust so that we could receive forgiveness and peace, have peace with God. But this gospel message isn't only about death. That would be, not be a very hopeful message in the end. It necessarily includes resurrection from the dead. Jesus was raised. Death was not the end. Death had no hold on him. His death was a victory over sin, death, and hell. They guaranteed that sin, death, and hell, or his death guaranteed that sin, death, and hell would not have the last word. But not just for him, for for all who belong to him as well. That's the point that Paul's been making. He used the word first fruits, which we covered a couple weeks ago. Um, Jesus' death is a kind of first fruits. It is a sign of what is to come, just like the first fruit of the season is a sign of what is to come, and it is guarantee of that more is coming. So Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of ours to come. Listen to the glorious truths that are celebrated just before our, our, our passage here, kind of halfway through this verse uh, 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is, it is true that we still feel the sting of death in this life. We still feel some of that. However, it has been disarmed. It has no real power over God's people. For, for God's people, death is not the doorway to God's judgment and displeasure, but a doorway to God's good presence and pleasure. It is the doorway to God's people living with God for all eternity in his new creation, forever enjoying and worshiping him, being in his presence, seeing his goodness, knowing it, 
beyond a shadow of a doubt, like we just sang about, the goodness of Jesus. And so this is what Paul has been saying, been arguing throughout this chapter. In, in a sentence, if, if we are in Christ, if we belong to Christ by faith, we have hope for life eternal after death. You, you likely already know this, right? That's, if you've been a Christian, been in the church for, for long, that's not a, um, a new statement. But what do we do with this? Therefore, if this is the case, if we have this hope, what follows? What flows from this? Paul goes on, Therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, as throughout this letter, brothers does, doesn't just mean the men in the church. Paul, this, this is a letter to uh, the whole church, men and women. Um, the term translated brothers, at least in the ESV, is just a term that refers to siblings in a family. So it's referring to the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Therefore, church. And then Paul is going to essentially say two things. Um, let me give them to you up front in, in a kind of simple, similar terms, and then we'll go through them. First, the hope of resurrection fuels patient endurance. The hope of resurrection fuels patient endurance. And then secondly, the hope of resurrection fuels labor in making disciples. Let's unpack both of these. First, the hope of resurrection fuels patient endurance. Look at the first, how Paul goes on in the first part of this verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Be steadfast, immovable. Now, what are we to be steadfast and immovable in? Surely there are some, some things you don't want to be steadfast in. There are times for, for moving, for changing. So what is Paul calling us to be steadfast in? Where, where is he calling us to stand firm at? Well, this, this makes a lot of sense. If you go back to the very beginning of chapter 15, where Paul says in the first couple, couple verses, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what Paul is saying is to be steadfast, to be resolutely holding fast to the gospel message and to the God of the gospel message. Hold fast, continue steadfastly in believing in and clinging to God and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and all that it means and the forgiveness of sins and the peace with God and the hope for eternity that it secures. But the specific focus here is the hope of resurrection peace, at least for the Corinthians. Steadfastness in the hope of resurrection. The hope of resurrection, the knowledge that death is not the end, that the value of our lives is not determined at the point of death, but after that should, not, should make us steadfast and immovable here and now. It should make us not easily swayed, not easily, easily shaken when life is difficult or when obedience or faithfulness don't seem worth it. 
if we live with and in light of this certain hope, hardships in life won't destroy us. And on the other end, successes and joys won't deter us from continuing faithfully on holding to what is to come. I've uh, made this analogy before, but we do a lot of flower gardening, as many of you know. And if you're going to grow flowers, you have to keep your, you have to keep in mind spring. I didn't know this at the beginning, but there's a lot of gardening throughout the year. And as you go through fall and winter, it can be very bleak, especially here. It can be very discouraging. Uh, and part of that is you just don't see a lot happening. But you have to be planting, you have to be tending, you have to be doing things. But throughout this, you have to keep spring in mind when you're going to start seeing these green things coming up out of the ground. And then you see the, the flowers bloom, and it's all worth it. Likewise, the hope of God's eternal kingdom to come is meant to sustain us through the seasons of the, the falls and the winters of this life. We have to keep that in mind. So how are you doing in this? How are you doing being steadfast and immovable? You know, not just holding on to God and the hope that is in him when you see the need, kind of going through ups and downs and doing it in phases, not only when you need something from God or see some clear benefit, but, I mean, as the word implies, are you steadfast through all seasons, through all situations? Do you hold on to, to God and the hope that is in him, whatever your life looks like? Is Jesus your boast and your, the goal, goal and end of your life, whatever life looks like? Be steadfast and immovable. The hope of resurrection does more than this, though. Second application. The hope of resurrection fuels labor in making disciples. So look at the last part of the verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, when I read that part, I have questions. Perhaps you do as well. And it, it's good to bring questions to a biblical text. That's how we, how we learn what it means. We ask questions of it. So here, I want to know what is the work of the Lord that we are to be abounding in? Uh, similarly, what is labor done in the Lord which is not in vain? Well, let's start with that last part. This, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea, this phrase, in the Lord, or we were talking about it as in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? This is the most common way that the Bible talks about Christians, refers to believers, those who belong to Christ. It is as those who are in Christ, such that all the blessings that Christ has secured and won are ours. We are so united with in Christ, that what is his is ours. And likewise, our sin and guilt goes on him. So labor that is in the Lord seems to be, that, seems to be all that those who are in Christ do in obedience to him for his glory. 
This seems to be referring to all that those who are in Christ do in obedience to Christ for glory, for the glory of Christ. And so the day-to-day trust you place in God is, is labor in, in the Lord. The, the rest and comfort and strength that you find in his grace and love and forgiveness is labor in the Lord. Your fight to be satisfied in him rather than looking elsewhere for satisfaction is labor in the Lord. Similarly, your sacrificial and servant-hearted love for one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your willingness to be mocked or ignored or mistreated in giving witness to God, your willingness to arrange your schedules, to, to make time to gather with and encourage and build up one another in the church is all labor in the Lord. And the point here is that such labor is never in vain. Whatever sacrifices, whatever losses, whatever pains, it involves now are not a true and full assessment of its value. Such labor is not and will not be in vain. Uh, to put it positively, it will be worth it. You, all, of, all that you do towards this end will be justified, will be vindicated in the end. And yet there seems to also be a more specific focus and meaning here to the work of the Lord. This first phrase, the work of the Lord, seems to be a bit more specific than everything a believer does for the glory of God. What I mean is this. You can glorify God in your work, in your schooling and studying, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your vacationing, in your resting, in all of that, you can and should glorify God. Paul has told us earlier in this letter, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you can do and you should do everything to the glory of God. But this isn't necessarily the work of the Lord that Paul is talking about here. That seems a bit more precise. So what is the work of the Lord? A couple, couple places in Scripture help us understand this. First is in John 6. Jesus is asked in John 6, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So we have that same idea. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So at the very least, the work of the Lord begins with and is connected to believing in Jesus for salvation. It is about human beings being rightly aligned with coming to God through Jesus. To take up some of the language of Paul earlier in this letter is about boasting in Christ and his cross rather than in man or in anything else. Finding our greatest glory and joy and hope and delight in Jesus. This is the work that God is doing in us. This is the work that God has done for us and continues to apply to us. But it's not only about us. We might say that there is also the work of God through us. God calls us to be always abounding in this work. And surely that doesn't just mean inward personally. So this brings to mind the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus commissions or sends out, gives a job description to not just his disciples then, but all of his people. So Matthew 28 
Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is a call to make disciples. This is a call to make disciples. Well, what does that mean? It's easy to throw that word around, but what does that mean? Uh, A few things to note here. First, this certainly is connected to what we just saw in John 6 about people believing in Jesus. Making disciples means helping, proclaiming who Jesus is and, and calling people to come to him. Uh, that's, that's what baptism means. We, we baptize people who have professed, confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. So this is connected to that. Second, there is a command to go here. There is a command to take action and initiative in disciple-making. We who are already disciples are called to, to put forth effort, to take initiative, to, to go to those who have not heard or do not yet believe. Uh, you know, Jesus does not say, sit around and wait for people to come to you. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we have people come here who have not heard about Jesus, and we, we love that. That's great. Maybe sometimes at, at work or at school, somebody comes up and you, to you and says, hey, tell me about Jesus. It's awesome. Pray for that. But there's a command to go here. There should be effort and impetus, a willingness to be stretched and get out of our comfort zone and have difficult and awkward conversations with those who are outside of Christ. Because there's nothing more important than making disciples. There's nothing more important than seeing people come to know and worship God as God. So for some of you, this will mean going to Faraway places, other nations like the Vaughns who are here today, like the Harringtons, like the Bolaños that we are connected with. It means being willing to uproot yourself to proclaim the gospel or support the proclamation and or the translation of the gospel in different areas of the world. For others, probably for most of you here, it means taking action, putting forth effort right where you are. Still going, still getting out of your comfort zone perhaps, or your, your home, and pursuing people around you at work, at school, at, in your neighborhood. You, you don't have to raise money and go to a faraway country to be a missionary, to spread the gospel. Third, this isn't only about making converts. It's not only about the width or the breadth, it's also about the depth. When we baptize someone, we don't wipe our hands and say, whoa, phew, I'm glad that's done. Good luck. No. For one, we, when we baptize someone, we, connect, we are connecting with them as a body, as the church, as a family. We become joined together with them. There's a reason why we don't baptize ourselves. We, we are baptized into a people, into a, a church. And, and a people who will be physically present with us as we go on to encourage us and exhort us and hold us accountable and teach us. That's the other part of what Jesus says here, right? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, we don't just make converts and then kind of leave them on their own to figure things out. 
leave them immature, susceptible to being led astray. We seek to bring them up into maturity, into stability. And fourth, this this work of disciple-making is meant to happen in and through the local church. Uh, Baptism implies this, teaching implies this, but the rest of Scripture makes it clear. It is not your job alone to go out and make disciples, right? You don't need to do every part of that for every person. It is the job of the church community with all our various giftings and roles and parts working together. We covered this a few chapters ago in chapter 12 about the body. Paul talks about this also in Ephesians where he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And it's incredibly encouraging and exciting to see God do this at a church and do it here. You know, as, as teaching goes out from the pulpit, from the various small groups and community groups that are meeting. The teaching goes out together. We hear God's word. We submit to it. We, we celebrate the grace and the lordship and the authority and goodness of Christ. We gather together in various ways, formally and informally, and discuss it and apply it and speak about it, speak the truth to one another. When we are struggling, when fellow church members are struggling, going through hard times, struggling with sin. We remind them of the truth. We, we ourselves are a tangible reminder, evidence of God's grace simply as we are there and present and engaging with one another. And then as this all happens and God's word bears fruit and his spirit brings different people around, we get to tell the testimonies of this. You get to share, hey, here's what God did, whether one-on-one or at our our members' meetings, or in the two-minute testimonies that we do here Sunday mornings. The point is that this is what discipleship looks like, and it involves the whole church. It's not just about the people that you can gather, gather around you, and you're the only influence and, you know, evidence of God's grace in their life. It's meant to be the work of the whole church. It's also, also not just about coming to a a service on Sundays and being a consumer of the goods so you can get what you need. No, we are all a part of the work of the church, of doing this, teaching them uh, to obey all that I have commanded you. We are all doing the work of the Lord. Now, of course, you you may not be on staff at a church. You may not have a, a defined official role you may spend and probably do spend do, most of your time, much of your time doing things that you're maybe not immediately connected to, to the life of the church. But you are still called to both be a disciple and make disciples. Whatever your job description or your, your role description is outside of here, you also have a job description here. Be a disciple maker. Paul's made this point over and over again. He says, you are the body of Christ. You, you are the body of Christ. Church is not a place for mere, merely to be entertained, merely to consume, merely to check off a box. You are called to do the work of the Lord. 
And while that is not limited to what happens here or through here, it does flow out of the local church, both here and in many other churches. So notice that Paul says, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And he's not saying this just to the leadership of the church. He's saying this to the whole church. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. So again, how are you doing in this? What does it look like in your life to contribute and to the make, contribute to the making and building up of disciples? Perhaps you have a very small part to play. You know, we all have a different bandwidth. Perhaps you have one other person that you disciple or you're involved in a community group or a study or you regularly check in on somebody. Whatever it may look like, we all have the call. Everyone that claims Christ has this call to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And we should heed the promise here at the end. Again, your labor is not in vain. We can have the confidence that our labor is not in vain. That living for the Lord, doing the work of the Lord is always worth it. And usually when you're reading scripture, it's helpful to realize this is here because we need to hear it. We are told your labor will not be in vain because it will seem to be in vain. It will not seem worth it. It will seem too much to bear. Uh, Bart, we had uh, Bart preaching last week, and he talked about the intense persecution of some pastors and Christians in, in East Asia, even to the point of death. We know that for Christians in many Muslim-majority countries, they are regularly persecuted and even put to death. Surely their labor must seem in vain at times. But we really don't have to go around the world to know this. We really don't even have to go outside of our church to know that faithfully living for the Lord can come with a heavy cost. Many of you know that right now, readily aware of that. Many of you have known that in the future. You have gone through those times. Many of you have unforeseen troubles and trials to come in the future. And perhaps for us, the, the greatest threat is not necessarily persecution from the outside, but temptations from within. Just the temptations to use our time and resources merely to please ourselves. The temptation to be always distracted and numbed by worldly pursuits and experiences. These are more often the areas where we probably need, most need to be diligent and to sacrifice. Where we have to consider, what can I give my time and resources and energy to that will not be in vain in the end? What has God called me to do that may be incredibly difficult, that may not come with any guarantee of success, but which I nonetheless know will not be in vain? But surely, at the same time that we, that we wonder this, we, we wonder, is it all worth it? Will it be worth it? We also confess, like Peter did, Lord, to whom shall we go? What else do we have? Where will we go? 
Lord, you have shown us your goodness and compassion and worth, and we know that there's better, no better place to be. In the words of St. Augustine, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The way forward may be treacherous, but there's no better place to be than in your hands. Better trials and sacrifices that we know will work for your glory, for our good, than comfort and ease apart from your promises and your presence. So church, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear these words. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You're doing the work of the Lord is not in vain. Your, your simple daily faithfulness, walking with the Lord day by day, is not in vain. Your battle against temptation to sin is not in vain, whatever sacrifice it requires. You're continuing to love and serve a difficult individual is not in vain. Your faithfulness in a difficult marriage is not in vain. Your commitment to a local church body for the sake of discipleship is not in vain. Your giving of your time and your talents and your treasures for the sake of building up Christ's body is not in vain. Your willingness to step forward and take responsibility and step into areas of, of leadership is not in vain. And you're being turned down, ignored, or mocked when you attempt to share of the hope that you have in Christ is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.